DiscerningHearts.com. In cooperation with Seeking Truth, Catholic Bible Study presents Genesis, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. In this study of the first book in sacred scripture, we're presented a sweeping view of the story of salvation. The narration is the story of Christ, present from the very beginning of time to the very end yet to come. It is a powerful story present throughout the entire Bible. St. Jerome said, Ignorance of Scripture is ignorance of Christ. The mission of Seeking Truth is to actively seek truth and raise up disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ through an in-depth Catholic Bible study. We now present Genesis, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. All right, welcome back, welcome back. And the lecture I'm gonna give you tonight, since we haven't studied yet, we're going to do a narratio. And a narratio is Latin for the narration. And what I'm gonna try to do in the next 35 minutes, pray for me, is give you the whole entire story. Because it's important to know the big picture. This is the narratio. And this is how John Paul explained it, uh, beginning in the beginning of human history till the end of human history, the narratio, original humanity in paradise, fallen humanity, redeemed humanity, that's where we are now, and then glorified humanity when we will go again to paradise. Um, so it's the big picture, God's story. The Catechism says that theology is the mystery of the Trinity, the innermost life of, of God. But he reveals himself through the economy. And the economy is all the works by which God reveals himself and communicates his life to us. So the economy is all the works by which God reveals himself and communicates his life to us. The economy of salvation because God has a plan. He had a plan, he still has a plan. It's not over till it's over, and it's not plan B. <laughs> it's plan A from before the beginning of time. We didn't mess up his plan and thwart his plan, he has a plan. And the Father's plan is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Father's plan. No one has ever seen God, the only Son who is in the bosom of the Father has made him known. Jesus is the plan. He, Jesus, reflects the glory of God and bears the very stamp of his nature, upholding the universe by his word of power. Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Remember when Philip said, Lord, Lord, show us the Father. That would be enough for us. And Jesus said, don't you know, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time, don't you know anyone who has seen me has seen the Father? Well, how can you say, show us the Father? Jesus is the way to the Father. Jesus and the Holy Spirit have missions to restore us back to our original image and likeness of God. Man and woman were originally created in the image and likeness of God. God said, let us, plural, let us make man in our image and our liking, our likeness. Who's he talking to? Mankind falls from grace. Human likeness is no longer like God's likeness. We've been separated from God. We've fallen from grace. And we hide 
We're shameful. They're shameful. God's, where are you, Adam? Where are you in covenant with me? Where are you? God banishes man and woman from the garden of paradise. Well, that's mean of God. He's a meanie in the Old Testament. No, that's merciful of God. God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. That's the most merciful thing. It's the first animal sacrifice. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good from evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Because you know why? If he eats from the tree of life in this state of separation from God, in disobedience to God, he's going to be banished forever. That's the most merciful thing God could have done, was to banish them until he could send the plan you see how merciful God is? So the Lord God banished them. He places them on the east side of the Garden of Eden, and he pits a cherubim with a flaming sword to guard the way back to the tree of life. The tree of life. It's in the middle of the garden. They were told they could freely eat of that one. To guard the way to the tree of life is God's greatest mercy. God knows that if they eat now, in a state of sin, then they would be permanently separated from him forever for all eternity. It's still important that we don't eat from the tree of life if we are in a state of separation from God. And that's why the church in her wisdom lets us have the sacrament of reconciliation first so we are clean and pure and in right relationship to receive the living God. We return to a state of grace before eating from the tree of life. It's mercy. This tree of life is now this tree of life. A lot of people don't get this, and it's right in the beginning. It's important. The Father's plan is Jesus Christ all along. I perked up my ears uh, at Mass yesterday at the preface of the exaltation of the cross because it said this, you decreed that man should be saved through the wood of the cross. The tree of man's defeat became his tree of victory. Where life was lost, their life has been restored through Jesus Christ our Lord. You start catching these things at mass, you know? And the Lord God said, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, any tree you want, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because when you eat from that, you will surely die. Well. They chose the only tree that God asked them not to eat from, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Did God really say that? Really? I love this painting because you see that now, because of their disobedience, God in his mercy has clothed them, but they're banished. He's on this side. Here's the river of life where the origin of it is. They're on this side. There's a, there's a chasm here, and look who's on their side. They need a way back to right relationship with God. It's all about relationship. There's the river of life in the garden, and there's the tree of life. And Jesus is both of them. The river waters the garden from Eden, and it has four headwaters, every direction of the earth. And the middle of the garden is the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Remember in John when Jesus said, whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. He's the river of life. He was there all along. He who feeds on this bread will live forever. It's a tree of life, the leaves. 
man gets separated from God, so we have a problem. How do we know God had this plan all along? Well, it's already there in Genesis 3.15, right after the fall. The Proto-Evangelium is the first good news, the first gospel. God's speaking to the serpent, and he says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring, which in Greek was spermatos, or seed. Well, women don't have sperm. What? What? And her, and he will, he, hers, and he's going to crush your head, and you will strike his heel. So some woman is predicted who's going to have spermatos. How is this going to happen? And her, her offspring is going to crush the head of Satan. Really? Huh. God has a plan. He, the woman's offspring, is going to crush the head. And you're going to strike his heel. Would you rather have a strike to your heel or a fatal blow to your head? Jesus Christ is the Father's plan all along. And the last chapter of the Bible tells us in Revelation 22 that on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, continual food, continual bread of life, and the leaves of that tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The Eucharist is going to heal us. The food he wants to give us heals us. And this is the big picture. This is God's story from before the beginning of time. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first chapter of the Bible and the last. It's a unitive story. And we're in there. Revelation 22 about this river. There's no longer going to be any curse. And the throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face. We're going to gaze on God again. And, and their name, his name's going to be written on our foreheads. How's that going to happen? Baptism. Paul tells us, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God for whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Three out of the seven sacraments, you get an indelible seal that can, that's permanent, can never be erased, never has to be redone. It's a sacramental character or a seal that gives you a share in that priesthood, that common priesthood of Christ. It's a guarantee, a promise, a divine protection and there will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever because the Father's plan. <clears throat> but whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil's taken away. We don't get it. We can't see it. We can't see it all now. But wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we, with unveiled faces, all reflect the Lord's glory. And we're being transformed into his likeness with an ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So he's perfecting us. That Spirit is sanctifying us and perfecting us back to the image of Christ. The tree of life, Jesus is bringing us back into union with the Father. He's going to lead us back into the Garden of Paradise. He's the Father's plan. He's the tree of life, and he's the river of life, both. And we say, eh, no thanks. He said, why can't people get this? Why can't they understand? No thanks. I'm good. I'm good. Don't need a Bible study. Don't need to learn anymore. I'm good. I go to church sometimes. I'm good. Jesus wants to give us the river of life. He wanted to give the woman at the well the living water. Jesus said, everyone who drinks this water is going to be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will be a spring of water welling up inside him to eternal life. 
And she says, hmm, give me that water. Then I wouldn't have to come back here every day. And he says, go get your husband. I have no husband. Remember this? Yes, you do. You have five husbands, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. So see, he's still going to call us to obedience. There's going to be a change in life. Whoever believes in me, as scripture says, streams of living water will flow from him. But he's going to require us to turn from sin, to turn from our old way of life. The Father's plan is Jesus Christ. He wants us reunited with the Father, not separated anymore. And in that last chapter of the Bible, uh, 21 actually, Revelation 21, he says, it's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of Jesus establishes a kingdom on earth, his church, his one flesh bride. Jesus is the head of his body, the church. That means they're one. They're inseparable. It's a permanent union. He gives water of life, baptism, and he gives food, the bread of life, the tree of life, Eucharist, his own flesh and blood. Jesus is the Father's plan, and the church is part of that. The church is the continuation of the plan. His heavenly kingdom on earth, established by Jesus Christ himself, the church that the Holy Spirit animated and intimated and brought life into and still speaks through today, and it's universal, or Catholic, which means for all. It's for everybody. Everything we need, God has provided through the church, who is the one flesh bride of Christ. Eve is pulled from Adam's side. Perfect compliment for him while he sleeps. The church is pulled from the side of Christ. Perfect compliment for him, the new Adam, while he sleeps on the cross. Do you see? The church is the bride of Christ. It's an unbreakable marital covenant. In Ephesians, Paul tells us, the husband's the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, which he is Savior, cleansing her by washing her with water through the word, to present to himself a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or blemish, to be holy and blameless. That's his bride. That's who he's perfected. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. But, but the, the, he goes on to say, this profound mystery that I'm talking about, I'm talking about Christ and the church. They are one, and it is a mystery. And we remember Mary standing at the foot of the cross today on this, the Feast of Our Lady of Sorrows, and sudden flow of blood and water. His sight is pierced, and water and blood flows, and she's right there under the cross. Everything we need has been provided. Right from the sight of Christ flow baptism, water of baptism, and blood, flesh and blood of the Eucharist. Mary, standing there, and Jesus gives her to John, a disciple, a follower of Christ, and doesn't say, hey, can you take care of my mom? He calls her woman again, back to the garden, back to the garden. Eve was called woman, that universal term. Mary is going to be the mother of both, the bride, the church. She's the mother of the church, and she's also the mother of the groom, Jesus Christ, the bridegroom. She's the mother of both. She's our mother, and she's his mother. And to the disciple, here's your mother. Mary's the mother of the word and the mother of the church. She still bears the word to the world with her yes, and all generations will call her blessed. Mary was there at the birth of Christ, and Mary was there at the birth of the church, and the 
Holy Spirit overshadowed both episodes in Scripture. That's huge. Mary's the new Eve. The old Eve says no, and she's disobedient. I love this old painting because she's feeding, she's supposedly the mother of life. Well, her no, her disobedience brought spiritual death. She's feeding her children from the tree of knowledge. Mary feeds her children from the tree of life. The leaves are healing for the nation. Jesus is the new tree of life, and Mary's children will have everlasting life. Mary will be the mother of life. She's the new Eve. The tree of life is Jesus, for my flesh is real food. We learned this last year. My blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. And then in Revelation, last chapter, it says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. The Spirit of God who animates the church, the bride of Christ, the Spirit and the bride say, Come. Let him who hears say, come. Whoever's thirsty, let him come. Whoever wishes, let him take free the water of life. Come, whoever is thirsty. This universal bride is for all. The spirit and the bride say, come. The Holy Spirit is the soul that animates the church. And Jesus says on the cross, I thirst. I thirst. The God of the universe thirsts? The river of life thirsts? What does he thirst for? He thirsts for every single soul. Come to me and drink freely. And the Lord Almighty says, I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. That was predicted to Zechariah. Oh, yeah, really? Well, how's he going to do that? Huh? A single day? Yeah. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieves bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. <coughs> Remember in John chapter 2 when Jesus called himself the new temple? Way back in Ezekiel, it was predicted. He had a vision. I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple. Water and blood flows from his pure side. This is the Father's plan. This is Jesus Christ. And they they, they hadn't made all these connections yet in this unit of scripture. Remember when they're walking on the road to Emmaus in Luke, in Luke chapter 24, and they're saying, don't you know Jesus Christ in his glorified body is walking with them? They don't recognize him. They say, don't you know what happened today? Haven't you heard? And, and, and they're telling him all that. And he says, Jesus says, well, didn't Christ have to suffer all these things? Don't you know the prophet? Haven't you read? And they're like, what? And he starts explaining it to them. He starts opening the scripture to them. And they're still, they're so intrigued. They're like, can you come in and have dinner with us? What he's doing is unfolding the economy of the salvation history that God has communicated through real history. And they're at the table, and he begins to break bread. And then they recognize him in the breaking of the bread. And they get their sight, and they say, we're not our hearts burning within us. As he opened the scriptures to us, it's all making sense. That's what we have at the Mass, the liturgy of the Word and the liturgy of the Eucharist. We read the Word, and the Word is made flesh in the Eucharist. Everything makes sense in the Eucharist. Remember when we read all those times in John that he would be lifted up, lifted up, lifted up. We had it yesterday for the exaltation of the Holy Cross. He will be lifted up. He'll be ascended back to the Father, but he'll be lifted up in the church for, until the end of time. He'll be lifted up. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. This is the bread that came down from heaven. 
Your forefathers ate manna and died. But whoever feeds on this bread, they will live forever. He's the true manna that came down from heaven. This is the Father's plan. The plan of salvation is Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. And in the Catholic Church, we have the Word made flesh at Mass every time we go. And our minds are illuminated to the mystery. John Paul II tells us in uh, CT stands for Catechesis Tridende, he tells us that uh, catechesis aims to develop the understanding of this mystery of Christ and, and that the whole person should become impregnated by the word, just like Mary was impregnated by the word. We need to be impregnated by the word so we understand the mystery of our faith. The word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. That means in Greek, he tabernacled among us. We have seen the glory, the one who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Everything we need, God has provided through Christ and his bride, the church. We have a great cloud of witnesses, a great communion of saints, and this is the Father's plan, not plan B, plan A all along. So we go from God-like image, the fall of mankind, we lose it, we return, we, we now have a sinful image. Jesus comes and shows us a glimpse of the Father through the incarnation. Jesus, who's fully God, takes on human flesh. Then Jesus offers the perfect sacrifice in perfect obedience through the crucifixion, perfect obedience to the Father's plan. And he rises from the dead in the resurrection, he conquers sin and death, fulfills Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelium. He makes a way back to the Father. He's crushed the head of Satan. He returns to the Father in the ascension. God exalts him to the highest place, but he does not leave us orphans as he promised. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. And he unleashes the Holy Spirit when he bows his head on the cross and he says, it is finished. He bows his head and he gave up his spirit. He gives over his spirit. And that spirit comes on Pentecost in a powerful way and they are all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, we can be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and have that same spirit of the living God living with us and we can return to that God-like image once again perfected and sanctified by the power of the Holy Spirit alive within us. We can become partakers of the divine nature. Our goal is to be perfected back in holiness, sanctified by the Holy Spirit throughout our whole life so that we can become partakers of his divine nature once again. Wow! Man and woman originally created in the image and likeness of God we fall, but he comes so that we can be perfected back to the original image and likeness of God. Return to the garden of paradise once again. Because he's perfectly obedient to the Father's plan, we get to return to the Father. So obedience is going to be required of us too, because we follow Christ. But the Holy Spirit and the church will be a great ark of refuge and strength for us. That's the Father's plan. The plan involves the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Creation, redemption, and sanctification. There is one body, one spirit, one hope. We're called by one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. This is one God in three persons. The God who creates, the God who redeems, and the God who sanctifies. God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. One holy, Catholic, apostolic church. One flesh, 
forever bride of Jesus Christ. Now, how are we going to live this out? How are we going to get back to a divine nature? Through the sacraments. There are seven, a number of perfection and completion and covenant. And the Eucharist is the source and summit. The tree of life is the source and summit. That's the goal for us, to understand this mystery so it becomes real to us, so this mystery becomes a reality. John Paul tells us that sacramental life is impoverished and very soon turns into hollow ritualism if it is not based on serious knowledge of the meaning of the sacraments. Do you understand that? We just go through the line, file through, get our communion. I mean, if we don't understand the deep meaning of these sacraments, it turns into hollow ritualism. That's what's happened to a lot of Catholics. It's hollow ritualism. He's calling us back to study the word of God and figure out the meaning of the mystery. It's all there in the Bible, I promise. To know his mystery, the kingdom of God proclaimed by him, the requirements and promises contained in his gospel message. we got to study it. Paul knew the mystery. Paul talks about this mystery. It's known to me by revelation. I've already written briefly about it. It's the mystery of Christ. And listen to this. He says, um, this mystery is to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past has been kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the mystery is made known. I love what John Paul told the youth at Madrid this summer a few weeks ago. Dear young friends, as the successor of Peter, let me urge you to strengthen this faith which has been handed down to us from the time of the apostles. Make Christ, the Son of God, the center of your life. But let me also remind you that following Jesus in faith means walking at his side in the communion of the church. We cannot follow Jesus on our own. Anyone who would be tempted to do so on his own or to approach the life of faith with this kind of individualism so prevalent today will risk never truly encountering Jesus or will end up following a counterfeit Jesus. There are seven sacraments that help us. The events in scripture correspond to the sacraments. In each sacrament is a mini narratio. And you can figure them out. The clues are all there. They help us understand. Later, grace is going to return through Jesus Christ. And we will put on Christ in baptism. He will be a new garment. Remember when God covers them with those animal skins? In Christ, we get a new garment of salvation, a white baptismal garment of salvation. At Easter Vigil, the catechumens put on their white garments of salvation. When we take an infant to claim them for Christ, we put them in a white garment of salvation. When you die, your casket is going to be draped with a white garment of salvation at the Mass of the Resurrection. It's a glorious Mass. And the angels will welcome you back into the Garden of Paradise. This is the narratio. This is the story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth, and the earth was formless and empty and darkness and was over the earth, but the Spirit of God was there, and God said, God spoke the word. They're all three there, right in the first three verses of the, of the Bible, the whole trinity. God's going to overcome formlessness, and God's going to overcome void, because the earth is formless and void. It's empty. What's formless, he's going to fill. What's void, he's, he's, going to, he's going to form it and fill it. And all the numbers in the Bible have meaning. Hebrew numbers always have meaning. It was three days to form and three days to fill. 
God is three. Three persons in one. He is doubly impressing himself on creation. Three is the divine number for the Hebrews. They didn't know about Trinity yet, but this is Holy Spirit-inspired writing. Divine. The divine number. Holy, holy, holy. They didn't have superlatives to say like good, better, best. So holy, holy, holy was God. He was three. He's the divine number. Earth is four. Four was the number for earth. In the Bible, when you see four, it's all the directions, four seasons, four winds, four directions, four ordinals. And, and it's for worship. The earth is created for worship. The Hebrew people knew that. When they built altars, they were four-sided. For, for every direction, we are to worship God. This was the most natural thing. Seven was the number of covenant, perfection, completion. Seven's a big number in the Bible. So three days to form, three days to fill, and it's on day four that God begins to fill the earth. So three plus four is abundance. He wants us to have abundance of life, have life and have it to the fullest. He wants a covenant with us. This is the day God's going to marry himself to the earth. It's a marital embrace. God wants to know his creation. God wants to have relationship with his creation. This is what we're made for. We're made for this priesthood to worship God. This is what our baptism is all about. That's primordially who we are. We are priests, and we want, we're made to have unity with God, union with God. We're made for worship of God. Abel knew this because he offers pleasing sacrifice to God. Cain's isn't going to be so high. That's a great story. We're going to study that. Sacrifice is there from the beginning. Abel does it wrong. Cain does it right. Cain might be entertaining sin that's crouching at his door. No one knows he's a priest. He knows he's there for worship. First thing he does when he gets off that ark is worship God with his family. God had initially ordered the chaos, but now sin had pulled the chaos out of the whole universe out of whack again. And Noah's ark is going to be a prototype for the church. It organizes the chaos. It helps maintain order. It's an ark. It's a safe refuge. Noah will take the animals. Why? Because he wants to be a zookeeper? No. Because he has to offer sacrifice. To God. He brings the sacrifice, uh, the clean animals, by sevens, the other animals by twos. It's a priestly act from the very beginning. It's the most natural thing. Abraham knew it. He offered sacrifice all the time. Finally, he's asked to offer this final sacrifice of his only son, Isaac. Peter knows it's a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of the, a set apart. We're, 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 we're made for this common priesthood. Ten in the Bible it means judgment. You'll see the Ten Commandments. Here's ten times four. The number 40 you know is huge. 40, 40, 40. A judgment is being exacted on what's for? The earth. So when it rains for 40 days and 40 nights, God is exacting a judgment on the earth. Moses stays on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. He gets ten commandments. God is exacting a judgment on the earth. 40 years of wandering for the, for the Israelites. Those who don't heed God's warning perish. God wants us to obey. He's always wanted us to obey, to hear and obey. Noah's family is saved in the ark through the water. There'll be a lot of symbolism there on that chapter. The water of recreation, however, does not eradicate man's sin. God recreates the earth, but it didn't, water alone did not take sin away. Just like John knew his baptism was a water baptism, he said, but, but, but someone else is coming who's going to baptize you with water and the Holy Spirit. That's the one that you're waiting for. Still, man's natural inclination, Noah, still meant to offer God sacrifice and worship. Water wasn't enough. Chaos enters again. He, get, he plants a vineyard and gets drunk. 
His son looks on him the wrong way and chaos again. And one son goes one direction, one son goes the other. One son gets the blessing and one son gets the curse. The blessing son will be Shem. And many scholars think Shem is Melchizedek and that will be a fascinating study. Uh, the Catholic priesthood is in the order of Melchizedek and Shem has the blessing. Uh, that we'll see that in Genesis 14. In Genesis 15, God will make an everlasting covenant with Abraham, and it will be solely dependent on God's faithfulness, not Abraham's. Thank goodness. And, uh, and they will stand there in, in a pool of blood between animal carcasses. It's fascinating. But then God will ask him for the ultimate sacrifice. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, the one you love, and go to Mount Moriah. This son will be asked to carry wood for the sacrifice on his back. And God's own son will carry wood on his back for this ultimate sacrifice. But Abraham passes the test. Now I know that you fear God. So he gets to withhold his son. But God says, I will provide a lamb. I will provide a lamb down the road. God will not get to keep his son spared from this suffering. He puts a ram in the thicket for Abraham, but his lamb will be caught in the thicket. And John will say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb has come. God has provided the Lamb. And that Isaac that's spared will marry Rebekah. And that will be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that we hear about. And he will have twin sons. And he'll favor one of them, Esau, the hunter. And that will not be a good thing because the, the other twin, Jacob, will deceive his father. I love this story. I love all these stories. And he's going to steal the birthright and the blessing. He's a deceiver. But what comes around goes around. He will have, go on to have 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. He will favor a son. And his own sons will deceive him. What comes around goes around. This son, Joseph, will be betrayed by his own brothers for silver. And this son was betrayed by a brother for silver. Joseph will be a righteous one. He won't give in to temptation with Potiphar's wife. He will be unjustly punished and made low. Jesus, the righteous one, will, will, will be unjustly punished and made low. Joseph will stand before Pharaoh. Jesus will stand before Pilate. Joseph will forgive his brothers. Jesus will forgive his brothers. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Jesus is raised up. Joseph is raised up, exalted over all of Egypt. Joseph will feed the world bread in a time of severe famine. Jesus will feed the world bread. And through his union with his bride, the church, he will continue to feed the world bread until the end of time. Do you see how Jesus, the Father's plan, is on every page of the Old Testament? We're going to find all those connections. Everything comes back to the tree of life and the river of life. Everything comes back to the Father's plan all along, Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. The tree of life, Jesus, is the source and summit of our faith, the source and summit of our life. And the final quote from John Paul, it is in the sacraments, especially in the Eucharist, that Jesus Christ works in fullness for the transformation of human beings. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the tree of life. You are the river of life. Thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for inspiring the writers 
with words that were not their own, with mysteries that were not their own. Thank you for unlocking the mysteries of our faith through your word by the power of your Holy Spirit. We dedicate this year fully and completely to you for your glory. Teach us all you want us to learn, Jesus, so that the sacraments are not hollow rituals, but true mysteries that take us back to the Father. It is in your precious name, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.